Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Urbanized Podcast. My name is Wally Brown. Today, I have the pleasure, the honor, and the grace of <laughs> uh, speaking <laughs> together with uh, Zachi Arakawa, uh, Senior Associate at Cascadia Partners, President of the Mapping Action Collective, and Researcher at the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project. Sachi, how you doing? Hello, Wally Brown. I'm really good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm excited for this interview. <laughs> Me too. It's not very often you get to chat with one of your friends on, on a recorded podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's about that time. (laughs) Yeah, it's cool. We don't see each other too often. You're one of my favorite people in Portland, though, because I like your vibes. You're you're pretty cool. Yeah. And I think I think people will get that from from this. Hopefully. I don't know. (laughs) Well, thank you. I'll try to send I'll try to throw my vibes out there. See what what people can catch over the airwaves. Let's do it. We're going to talk about the chickens later. So just, just get oh, oh, yeah. I've got some bad news for you about the chickens, but we can talk about that later. Okay. We'll talk about it later. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, now I'm scared to ask. I'm feeling scared to ask. Yeah. Well, let's keep it on a, let's keep it on a positive note. Okay. Okay. Let's do that. I got you. They're, don't, don't worry too much. They're basically okay. We had a, we had a chicken injury, but okay. you know, it's life on a farm. I feel that. But we're here to talk about urban issues. Yes. Yes, we are. Okay. (laughs) Although arguably, you know, really planning covers all the entire rural to urban spectrum, including farms and people on wells and who find themselves living on a dirt road like me suddenly and being an urban planner. Um, But, you know, there's maybe a little bit different styles of planning, depending on that continuum of density that you live on. So that's going to be one of our wrap up questions is kind of about that. So we'll we'll let that we'll let that slide off to the side. But like, get us started. Can you tell us like in your own words, like, okay, who, who are you, Sachi? Like, I know it's a big question, but like, (laughs) like, what what do you do, Sachi? Yeah. Oh man. Well, you're opening a can of worms there. It's Friday and I'm ready. I'm ready to ramble. My brain is, my brain is as a limited ability to constrain itself, uh, to the normal bounds of, um, terse conversation. So, uh, hopefully I won't go too off the rails with describing who I am, which is a big question, but, um, as far as who I am in the realm of what your podcast talks about, which is, Uh Um, folks that do planning and uh, maybe planning students, folks that are adjacent to planners. Um, I am an urban planner, um, but now by training and um, in my professional life. uh, And uh, I went through the MERP program, the Masters of Urban and Regional Planning program at Portland State um, about, gosh, four years ago three years ago now. Um, And since then, I've been uh, working as a planning consultant at a uh, private planning firm called Cascadia Partners. As you mentioned, um, I also have a background in GIS and mapping and geography, urban geography in particular, Mm. although I did some um, environmental studies and kind of natural resource um, management work as well. Um, When I was 
uh, in undergrad. Mm. And uh, so I, yeah, so I have that background and as part of kind of my, my work doing mapping and GIS, which is geographic information systems. I'll try to limit the, uh, the acronyms as much as I can, or at least define them while I'm talking. I got you. Um, So geographic information systems. Thanks Wally. Mm -hmm. Um, GIS, uh, it's basically digital mapping. Um, sometimes they call it spatial analysis, um, uh -huh. but that's a big part of what I did in undergrad and kind of where I started even before I fully knew that I wanted to become a planner uh -huh. um, and then has followed me into my work in planning. And I think is a big, my, my experience making maps and doing spatial analysis is a big part of um, how I got the job that I have today. Awesome. Um, and as you mentioned, I also, um, yeah, I, I helped found and um, kind of am still an organizer with a group called Mapping Action Collective. Um, and uh, that, so the El Presidente, yeah, <laughs> for whatever that's worth. Yeah, we're a 501c3, so we legally need to have a board. And uh, so I've fallen into the role of president. Okay. Um, but yeah, but you know, an interesting fact about me is that I was a high school dropout. I dropped out of school when I was uh, out of high school when I was 16. Oh, wow. um, and so, you know, I and worked in the service industry for many years. I was a film projectionist at one point. I worked in a couple different arcades, yeah. um, including Portland's own Wonderland Nickel Arcade <laughs> okay. and the retro arcade ground control. Mm. Um, and I worked in uh, the service industry for a long time. And so I guess that's, I'm just giving a little context because I think um, that experience when I was younger um, of maybe a less traditional background, you know, starting, starting less traditionally than a lot of planners maybe did um, gives me, I think like some unique perspective and um experience to draw from when I'm planning and when I'm thinking about, you know, all the different communities and um, spectrum of people that go into any place, especially more denser urban places. Yeah. Um, and kind of just having more life experience, I think, um, even though it's not traditional training, like my undergrad and grad school, mm. um, I think my time in the service industry and even my time kind of floundering in my late teens and early twenties and playing in bands and, oh. you know, traveling and stuff. Like, I think all that really informed um, who I am as a planner and how I think about, um, about planning issues. Yeah. I feel that. Thank you. I mean, that was a big question. You, you came up with that. <laughs> that was great. So I remember, I think now I know, I remember like when, when we first met, I felt like kind of like drawn to you. I was like, this person's interesting. And think I now I can better understand because I never knew that what you just said. And I think you're one of few people that I know that was like as busy as I was. <laughs> like like <laughs> yeah. the early twenties. Had like five jobs at all times. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a certain aura that that gives off. You're like, oh, you know what <laughs> yeah. Like. <laughs> like, yeah, recognize. I see you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's awesome. Okay. Yo, all right. So I had to. I I did a little research on you for for pulling up. Today. Oh boy. Oh <laughs> no. Had, all right. So you went to U of O. You had Japanese language and literature. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, way back in the day. Mm-hmm. Way back in the day. And then you got an associate's yeah. degree at Portland Community College. What was that in? I did. Shout out PCC. Thank God for PCC. They are such a fantastic transition from, especially as someone who came back to school much later in life. I was, I think, 30 or 31 when I went back to finish my undergrad. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, and uh, PCC was such a great accessible way to like get back into college. Yeah. Um, like I literally had like never opened a spreadsheet a day in my life before I, <laughs> before I went back to school at age 30 or 31 or whatever. Like I didn't even know how to use Excel or anything other than like basic email. And I had no understanding. I had a very rudimentary understanding of computers, um, which is kind of funny because now I work in a very technical field. Um, but yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, you can learn anything. Yeah. It's not really that. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I, I the, just, I hope anyone who's listening, that's a student who feels like learning technical things feels daunting. I will tell you that like, you can do it if you really like want to and have the passion to do it. Um, it's a lot of work and it's going to be very frustrating. So if you don't really actually enjoy it please don't do it but if if you do enjoy it and you're just intimidated because it's like oh you know like for whatever reason you don't see yourself as like a tech person or like you don't like I was always told I was too artistic to do GIS (laughs) like literally I had a professor tell me that and I honestly think he meant it as a compliment Um, and I guess I kind of take it as one if I think about it I mean you know I, I do think I mean, I think art and communication are equally, if not more important than things like, you know, and like data analysis and technical work, or at least yeah. like need to be perfectly married with that to be for it to be useful. You know, so I appreciate the compliment, but I also feel like, you know, folks who are maybe more are like tend to be like more artistic or emotional or commu- like communicative rather than like hyper analytical. Um, can be really intimidated by getting into fields like data analysis or even even planning to some extent because it's planning can be very technical too. Mm. Um, so I would just you know sorry I'm I'm rambling like I warned you I would but I would just I'm gonna, encourage I'm gonna it. I got you Sachi. <laughs> <Thanks, yeah, laughs> thread the needle for me okay. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean I just since I know you maybe have some students that listen um, I would definitely encourage people to. Um, not uh, let those types of barriers or stereotypes we have about ourselves and like what we can or can't do um, discourage you from doing those things because I am doing very technical work with as someone who for the majority of my life had no technical experience and you know was always thought of myself as more just quote-unquote like artistic and not like technically oriented so yeah you know i think that's cool you know i don't like i don't like how that guy talked to you i don't like that (laughs) my friend and then two there are so many ugly maps oh my god like it hurts my Mm -hmm. eyes to look at them you know and if people just make (laughs) it pleasing to look out people will actually look at it like i feel like the whole point of like data analysis the whole point of analyze like the data exists right and we're just making it easier for the average or whoever our audience is to understand and so like i feel like yeah art is like this practice of abstraction where you can create meaning from nothing and then like 
data analysis is like extracting meaning from everything, like too much stuff. Like I was talking with somebody, I was like, we're basically making sound from noise, like too much <laughs> data is mm-hmm. noise, information is sound. And like a, a cool map is like a song that you actually want to listen to. Right. Yes. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, without the, without the artistic, I mean, I don't know if artistic is even quite the right word, but without those communication skills that people like artists have. Yeah. Um, and I use the word artist really broadly. Like artists can mean like a graphic designer or artists can mean a musician or someone who makes movies or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like, those those skills without those skills data is like lost to me like you Mm. can you know you're only going to be speaking into the echo chamber of like the data analyst nerds who like can process data in the in the cryptic ways that we typically do it in like data analysis world without it being translated into something that has like a story and um, a clear, like a clear message and that people can actually understand like all that work that all of us data wonks do would be lost without that communication piece. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that is often overlooked and you know, that manifests itself, like you say, and like things like ugly maps that people can't even barely like you, yeah, that hurt your eyes. You don't even like, I'd rather not know how to like what I'm looking at, I don't even want to know because it's so confusing or, you know, whatever else it might be. Information that just is like completely cryptic and and impossible to understand. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's no good. That's, that's not helping anybody. (laughs) That's no good. Okay. Yeah. Yes. If it was like a blizzard, it'd be snow good. All right. So let's talk mm, about <laughs> what is here. All right. So I think some of our listeners will be. Excited. You need like a you need like a sound effects thing, like a wah, 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 or like an air horn or something for your puns. We are we're already aired on on the wave, <laughs> Sachi. So I we got you covered. This is okay. I think people are probably excited about the work that you do with anti eviction mapping. Like, mm-hmm. can you explain like a little bit about what you do and then like a little bit of why you got into it, you know? Yeah, well, I shouldn't take too much credit. I have a very, very, very small role in um, anti-eviction mapping project. They're uh, kind of a sister project or sister organization to Mapping Action Collective. Okay. Um, we were really inspired by them um, when we were just starting, um, which was about four years ago now. And, um, you know, just the, their work that they've done in the Bay area and then expanding out into New York and LA, um, using data and maps to actually kind of like subvert a lot of narratives and, and bring to light data that I think a lot of people, data and stories that I think a lot of people hadn't, um, seen or experienced. Um, and, kind of using data and maps as an activist tool, which was something that really, like, honestly, I I don't know why, but it really surprised me. I was like, oh, you can do that. Like data and maps aren't just for like really formal, like office settings. They can be used um, by grassroots activists. And that was like, 
that set off a real fire in me. <laughs> and yeah. um, my collaborator, Tim Hitchens, who I work really close with, with at Mapping Action Collective, um, he and I were both really excited about that and kind of wanted to model our work at MAC, Mapping Action right. Collective, um, uh, around what anti-eviction mapping project did. Um, and so we kind of, we started like kind of, we would run into folks um, from that organization, especially um, Aaron McElroy, uh, McElroy, sorry, it's called McElroy. Um, Aaron McElroy, who's like one of the founders um, and they uh, are really awesome. I'm sorry, I also think I just misgendered them. Apologies, Aaron, if you're listening. I'm sure you're not. <laughs> um, they're, yeah, they're a very inspiring person and a leader at um, AEMP. And so Tim and I kind of started hanging around with them and um, looking for ways that we could collaborate. Um, and we actually, the, uh, Aaron and a group of the Anti Eviction Mapping Project folks from around the country came to Portland and we did a housing data workshop. Oh. Um, in collaboration with Lisa Bates um, and uh, Andres from who used to work at the um, Portland Housing Bureau. Yeah. Um, and I then remember. worked for Chloe Daly. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry, I interrupted. No, 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 you got it. I interrupted you. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Andres. You know Andres. Yeah, I know Andres. Um, Oswell, I think it's his last name. I, I was. Know. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, so yeah, Andres also helped us organize that. We had Oregon Law Center there and we, we were just talking about the state of housing data and in particular eviction data in Oregon, which uh, similar to many states in the United States, it, the housing data situation and eviction data is horrible. It's like it's held in a um, password protected database that is extremely hard to use and navigate, even for people who are like literally needs to go in there because they're getting evicted, not for like data analyst people, which it's also difficult for us, but even for like the actual users that need to find out information about their own eviction, oh, it's yeah. very difficult to use. And frankly, I think by design, it oh, is yeah, difficult to use. Yeah. And it's um, for researchers, it's very difficult to track um, eviction data. And we, we have extremely limited understanding of how many formal court evictions even happen in this state. Um, even research, like even renowned researchers like Lisa Bates and the Oregon Law Center like have very little understanding because it's the data is so hard to get. Um, so anyway, we had um, anti-eviction mapping project came down. They were doing work on a project called Evictor Book, which um, uses data scraping, like web scraping techniques to um, pull information about predatory landlords um, off of the internet. And it, it's, it's a kind of complex project to uh, fully describe, but that's the upshot of it is um, like Facebook, a Victor book. It's like kind of meant to be like a, um, a web platform where you can go and look up the profiles of serial evictors or really any kind of like large um, predatory landlord. Um, and so they were doing that work. We were kind of like uh, interested in getting into housing data in Oregon. And so we had that workshop. And uh, since then, we've kind of, we've been collaborating with them. Um, Tim Hitchens, who I mentioned before, that works with Mac, um, uh, has done, he's like a 
coding master. Um, well, master is maybe not quite the right word, but he he's a <laughs> he has a lot of experience with like front end, back end web development um, and that type of work. And um, so he helped out a lot with the Victor book. And then I got involved with um, helping them doing research on um, COVID era eviction protections um, globally. Globally. Um, globally. Um, but my research primarily focused on the US. Aaron and some of our other team um, worked more on the global uh, side of things. But um, yeah, so we were tracking evictions um, at like the jurisdictional, all, all the way from like city to county to state level mm. um, as they were changing during COVID. Um, because as you probably know, there were a lot of moratoriums happening, um, protect, quote unquote, protecting renters um, from eviction um, and from getting into like extreme debt. Although most, a lot of those protections were unsuccessful or have huh. limited success. Yeah. <laughs> to I, I be frank, <laughs> it's, an, it's an interesting. It's an interesting. Yeah. Time. Yeah. So anyway, we we were mapping that and trying to track that as best we could. Um, and the project's kind of uh, I don't know. It's my involvement has gotten less with it over the last few months, and I think they're kind of trying to reimagine it a little now that the moratoriums, a lot of them are ending and, um, you know, protection like that, that piece of, um, quarantine is kind of wrapping up, but, um, yeah, it was a very interesting project and, um, we still have all the data from that. So I think it'll be interesting to look back years later too, and see how the evolution of, um, renter protections, uh, evolved over the the course of the pandemic the you know year and a half or two years that we've been in quarantine you know i think that's pretty i'm excited for that too and i'm also most excited about like and possibly helping with like um what you call it like kind of identifying landlords by properties mm -hmm. <laughs> people yeah hide behind shell companies it is so hard yep. to find out who owns what because it, like it's supposed to be public it's legally meant to be public mm -hmm. i learned yesterday about this thing called a template law that was like instituted after robert kennedy came to portland and like landlords were required to like post their name of who owned the building like in front mm -hmm. and like they would they were legally required to but then they would just post it in like russian or japanese oh. so <laughs> nobody could really understand of course now wow we could do that, but now they're using shell companies. Yeah. That nature. Yeah. 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 Little LLCs that they make and you can, you know, LLCs cost almost nothing to, to start and you can have 10 of them, you know, and, and be having, you know, there's, there's all this like web of, of companies and corporations and corporate bodies that landlords hide behind so that, they don't have any real, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Accountability. Uh, accountability. Thank you. They have no accountability to the the people that they are sheltering, which is yeah. very scary and really not okay. Quite scary. But that's that's just a that's just a non-relational database away from uncovering, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I see what you did there. Very nice. <laughs> 
Okay, so I need that sound effect. Wow, 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 air horn. Yeah, yeah. So that's cool. <laughs> Not relational databases. Those those have me hyped. <laughs> so oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Those people. <laughs> so fun. So fun. I don't understand it, but I will someday. So let's do it. So let's see. I have a real weird question for you. Okay. okay. How how do you see your role as supporting the functioning of the city? And that can be, I know you wear many hats, so you can choose which hat, like, and if you need the help prompting, like, basically, like, these maps, these maps, community-facing maps that you're making, how do you see them supporting the functioning of a city? Hmm. Um, well, it's, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, how does planning in general support the function of the city? I think my, like, my role in, at Cascadia, um, as a planner, um, and we're we're kind of like a full service planning um, consultant firm. So we do everything from like code reviews, and by code I mean zoning code and land use, um, to uh, th things like economic development, site development plans. Um, uh, we do scenario planning, which is a little more kind of aspirational, forward looking, um, but ultimately informs. Uh, how land use, how land use and growth management happens in the city, um, and then we also do engagement work. Um, and so we, it's kind of, it's it's a pretty broad, broad spectrum of planning um, elements, I guess you would say, uh, that I get to work on. Um, and I think the impact that it has on, uh, like, on the city. Um, or the functioning of, of the places that we work is that it uh, helps to regulate and inform uh, the legislation that regulates how we grow and develop in our cities. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, and we don't do a lot of like transportation work, but we do a lot of work that's adjacent to that as well as adjacent to like housing um, and environmental issues. I mean, as you know, it's all really intersectional with planning. You know, you almost can't do transportation planning without thinking about housing and the environment, right? Yeah. Um, Shout out NEPA. And what's that? Oh, NEPA. That's one of the... Oh, yeah. 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 Environmental review. <laughs> you sure do. Sir. Yeah. <laughs> NEPA is real. And when I work a lot in California, they have CEQA oh. too. Oh, oh wow. that's a whole, yeah. CEQA, yeah, it's their California's like environmental quality uh, policy, and it's extremely strict. I mean, with good intention for sure, but um, it makes doing anything in California planning wise very difficult. Um, and their, yeah, their planning um, processes are really, really rigorous um, in part because of the CEQA regulations. Um, I can't remember exactly what CEQA stands for it's like california environmental quality act i think so i think i got it um uh, <laughs> i got you such <laughs> trying to spell out those acronyms for you ollie but i'm sure yeah. you're already aware um well yeah so i mean i think to me oh, like one of the environmental quality act yeah you got boom it. boom that was pretty good wah, wah. i'm gonna do i'm doing my own sound effects now I since i got you thank you um, so yeah, I mean, I think that 
I think that one of the biggest impacts that we have on the city, one of the, one of the biggest like regulatory tools that planners actually have is land use and zoning. Right. Huh. And um, that's a big part of what I do at, as a planner and in my planning day job work with Cascadia is work around um, making zoning actually make sense, okay. making sure that um, making sure that zoning makes sense in terms of like, are we zoning in a way that is environmentally friendly? Like, is the way that we zone um, is is the and by zoning I mean like the the way we allow things to develop where where how how high of buildings we allow in different parts of the city do we allow apartment buildings multifamily um, do we only allow single family do we allow commercial do we allow industrial and where do we allow those things that's that zoning sense. for anyone who doesn't know I know you know that Wally but um, I think that's good <laughs> who are you designing who's your end user Sachi. I'm sorry. Who's your end user? Like, who are you designing for? Is it like, are you designing as like a private consultant, as a private planning consultant? Like, are you designing for the city that hires you? Or are you trying to make it easier for the businesses that apply through the city, businesses slash homeowners, or for like the residents? Like, who are you? Who's your end user for your design process? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's kind of all of the above. Um, the, I mean, certainly the cities um, are, you know, typically like cities or jurisdictions are our clients. We don't have a lot of private clients. We mostly work for uh, cities or counties or states, um, okay. even down to like very, we work in very small towns like um, Jackson, Wyoming mm. um, and uh, Park City, uh, Utah, Utah, Park City. Yes, Utah. Yeah, a lot of parks. Um, I don't work in Park City. It's one of my colleagues does, but uh that obviously that would be bad if I didn't know what state it was in and I worked there. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, so we work in, a, a, we work primarily for the public sector, consulting them on um, issues around land use, economic development, um, and, uh, and some, in some cases, long range planning um, when we do scenario planning work. Um, but the cities, you know, so the cities are our client, but generally this i mean the end user is not the city the end user is the community and we try to choose our clients in a way that um center if we try to choose clients that we see as centering equity and and valuing um the desires of the community um and the collaboration of the community in the decisions about land use because as i'm sure you know wally <laughs> Uh, historically, you know, zoning and land use were very exclusionary. Um, and, you know, the decisions that were made around zoning and land use, um, well, not just exclusionary, let's just be explicit, they're racist yeah. um, and classist. Um, again, you know, they basically intended to kind of uh, segregate um, the wealthy yeah. in their parts of the city and segregate poor and brown people in other parts. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and that was a result of this legacy of like top-down planning amongst many other problematic issues in the United States. Um, and you know, must, much of the, much of the world in general, I was going to say the Western world, but I'll be real. Like it's all fucked up or yeah. sorry. I don't even, I don't even need to curse. It's all screwed up. 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I digress. Um, I'm not on the radio, so we're not. We're not <laughs> okay. I'll, I let one slip, but I'll try to keep it clean. All right. So, um, you know, so basically, there's there's this long history of like top down planning and racism and kind of exclusionary behavior in zoning and land use that tended to favor um, wealthy white people and large industry, you know, um, because those are the people who had uh, the loudest voices and who were generally just making the decisions. Um, and so now um, I think increasingly, I would like to think and hope uh. that um, planners, the new paradigm is that planners really um, want to include people in land use and zoning decision-making. Um, maybe not like the nitty gritty of it. Like zoning can get really like, you know, down to like, what are like height requirements and setbacks and floor area ratios. And like people that's, that's maybe like two in the weeds for like your average person who's not a planner, but the bigger questions of like, where do we want to grow? How do we want to grow? What are our priorities for growing? Like, do we, you know, is affordable housing a priority? Is environmental conservation a priority? Mm. Is access to good transit and public health a priority? Um, and, you know, if so, then how can we kind of right size our zoning and our land use to reflect that? Um, and mm. also, uh, I think it's tricky. <laughs> and this is, this is a, a rabbit hole that I probably won't lead us too far down, but um, I got you. Zoning. I got you. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm going to try to keep it brief. So zoning and land use are very contentious. Um, yeah. For a case study of that, see Austin code, Austin's Code Next project. Yeah. Um, it was an attempt to revamp their code. And I think a well-meaning attempt by the city and a set of um planning consultants who worked on the project, but it had a huge backlash um, from residents because they felt like um, basically that the city was trying to up zone and create density. And, um, you know, what, what they, what they saw it as, what they saw as happening was like condos are going to come in big high rise, like shiny buildings are going to come in and replace our cute, like, are cute buildings that have all this character and give Austin like its quirky <laughs> personality. <laughs> okay, let's go. And go yeah, and so like <laughs> basically, you know, upzoning is is upzoning equals gentrification in their eyes, in the eyes of like certain people in the Austin community that were very vocal. Okay. Um, and so a planner, you know, like we like to use the term NIMBY, not in my backyard, meaning people who like basically are like, yeah, we want affordable housing and we want everyone to have a home and like all these things, but we don't necessarily, you know, but we don't want the character of our neighborhood to change. Oh. And so I think a planner would hear what they were saying in Austin and say they're being NIMBYs, you know, and, and I think they, in some way, I think they probably were, but it's a more nuanced thing than that. And, yeah. you know, it's really, I mean, they, they, I think the community that had those concerns like those were valid and they were coming from a place of wanting to preserve their culture and like, you know, the things they love about the place they lived. And yeah, um, that's yeah. not an, that's not an invalid thing, huh. you know, okay. but at the same time, like Austin is having somewhat of a housing crisis and 
how do you solve that without providing enough housing within a compact area that has access to amenities and transit without you, you don't <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so wicked question there but anyway that's all to say that like even though we we as planners are like this new paradigm of planner that i i would like to think i am a part of um wow. we like to think of we, we like to think that zoning um sorry can you still hear me my yeah, I still hear you. Okay, hear cool. You. My headphones sounded funny. Um, we, you know, we like to think that, and I think it is good to bring communities into decision-making processes of all kinds that um, that affect them, including how we zone things and how we do land use. But you have to be kind of careful about how you like frame it and how you communicate those issues because there's a lot of fear and misinformation and you you run the risk of having what happened in Austin happen, well, which that, is- What do you mean happened in Austin? Like people having backlash to it? Right, people having backlash to like a planning effort that I think was intended to benefit the community, but ended up being like very much at odds with the community. And like, I think gave, it sowed a lot of distrust with folks in Austin, and this isn't, I'm not speaking broadly about the entire Austin community, but like certain people in Austin and, and the city. What? Um, and I, yeah, I think was it like block? really I'm sorry. broke trust. Was, was it, it what? Was it blocked, Sachi? Did it go through or like, is it blocked? Is it only oh, no, it's no. been, it's like a multi, at this point, it's like a multi-million dollar <laughs> project that, yes, I mean, it has not gone through. I, as far as I know, it's still like, I don't know, in, in limbo somewhere. It's been years, Wally, and this thing has not passed. And it's just like a thorn in the side of the city, I think. And I shouldn't speak, I don't know enough about it to like be a spokesperson for the project by any means. So um, okay. if anyone's listening that worked on the project, that's like yelling into their into their <laughs> radio, like that's not how it went down. Please don't email me, just email Wally and you can yeah. complain to him. You but, can email um, me, we'll, we'll have you on an episode. You can be like, hey, let's, let's break it down. Wally at Wally. There's actually- Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, that would be great. We could have like a counterpoint like episode where they just break down the whole story. I would actually, I would love to hear from someone who worked on that Austin project. My coworker, um, Alex Steinberger, AKA oh. Steiny, um, worked on it a bit. And he, he would actually probably have a, a lot to say about it, um, and be more informed than me. Um, and there's also there's actually a documentary that that community that was against the um, zoning code changes made um, about like why the zoning code changes were bad. Um, it was actually pretty well done. It's a real like tugs at your heartstrings. Um, but I disagree with it. But I think it was actually well done. So um, I'll have to I'll have to find the name of that and I'll send it to you. I think it's called. All right, all right. I'm I'm gonna try to find it. I will. will if you find it and send it to me, I'll post it in the description for this episode. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, you might. People might be able to just do, uh, Google like Code Next documentary or something too. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, I'll I'll see if I can find it. And oh, here it is. I I googled it. It's called Zoned Out: The Legacy of Code Next. Legacy of Code Next. I'm down to yeah. see that. The legacy of code next. 
So let's see. Have you been following Doza or the design overlay amendments? Um, I haven't. No, is that in Portland? That is like, it feels like the same flavor as this. They're trying to basically upzone and there's some communities that are like, we don't want to be upzoned because it'll preserve character, which is not centrally defined. I don't know. It's crazy. <laughs> right. So I'm wondering like, okay, so we, we've heard that. Well, I'm as, as a black person, I always, I'm always, I always cringe whenever somebody says, we want to protect the character of our neighborhood. I'm like, well, what does mm -hmm. that mean? Like, I need you to write right. it down. Right. Cause I think they don't write it down. So that nobody can like come in and say, Hey, we, we do meet character. And then, you know, but. Right. Like, they keep it nebulous so that it can be whatever they want it to mean at the time. Yeah. 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 And so I'm wondering like, okay, so we have, and I don't want to speak on Austin cause I don't, you know, I don't live there, you know, I don't, I don't know what their life is like, but I can speak on Portland and a lot of, there's a lot of talk about like, some people feel like up zoning is like bad, or, but some people think it's really good because some people like if you're if you're restricted from up zoning, that means that mm -hmm. you there's if you're a property owner, that's things you cannot do with your property. That's things that other people have mm -hmm. access to that you do not. And like in the city of Portland, like they just decided to like there's a lot of corruption like back in the day, like all of our transit lines go directly to the central city when you go to East Portland. The transit lines don't run like north and south. They only run east to west. Like that was a very intentional act and it continues to be intentional. And then we have <laughs> a street non-transit. Streetcars are not transit in Portland. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's walking speed. And it's I can outrun, yeah, I can outrun the streetcar easily on any any given day. Yeah. And so you give people subpar service, like the funding for it is, I mean, I, 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 I like the people who work on the streetcar. It's just, I personally, I, I think it's a waste of space and, and money. Mm -hmm. And it's a land use tool. It's that you put buildings next to a streetcar to say, hey, we're next to the streetcar. Let's right. Like, oh, it's TOD. Yeah. yeah. It's, not, it's not. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what about this other side of it where, like, you know, there are people who, can't do things with their properties because they live in a part of town where the city says, Hey, we just, we're just not going to serve you because that's not where like the bank owners live, or that's not where the, <laughs> where the predominant heads of industry and chambers of commerce live, you know, mm -hmm. like, like a St. John's, like there's certain things you cannot do in St. John's because it's not the same. I'm sure a lot of people in St. John's wouldn't want that anyway, but like the fact that you just can't even do it, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, yeah. Do you mean because of lack of like infrastructure and access to like services like transit? Or do you mean because of the zoning um, like capacity issues, like not not having enough like properties that are commercially zoned or multi-use zoned or something like that? Okay. You ready, Sachi? Mm -hmm. All right. So I think it is an infinite loop, but I think that, well, it's a near infinite loop, but I think this is a countable infinity. And what I'm not, I'm not I know I'm saying big words, but I'm going to break it down. So basically there's like this huge loop between development and infrastructure where in Portland, mm -hmm. like a lot of the new sidewalks are not financed exclusively by PBOT. Like they'll be managed by, PBOT, Oh yeah. but they'll be right. financed by the new buildings. Right. Oh yeah. So definitely build new buildings. Okay. Okay. So we got that. Awesome. All right. So that's like step a. And then where do people build new buildings? 
where they're allowed to build taller buildings than what was there before, because then that's where you'll make the money back on either demolishing or refurbishing what was already there. Right. And so then this question of like, hey, where is the place of, where's the part of town that has the best infrastructure? It's the part of town that has the newer buildings, which is the part of town that permitted, it doesn't even have to be, they don't even have to build like super tall. It's just, they allowed you to build taller than what was there before. So you can mm -hmm. like make the money back on what was there. If you're, even if you're a smaller developer, you could get returns. And so I think you see that around Port like Southeast Portland is a good example. Like they don't build two to, I think they're capped at like seven stories out here, but they've been building stuff. And then you come out here now and like the streets that are closer to like, not even on the waterfront, but closer to the waterfront where there were government subsidies, like mm -hmm. you have contiguous bike lanes, you have ADA paths, you have like a contiguous or con a continuous route of paths that you could take if you were in a wheelchair or have a stroller mm -hmm. because there are lot next to lot next to lot or new building next to new building next to new building. And I'm saying new building like built 2000 or 2010 or after when they, when they updated the guidelines. Like, right. Yeah. So I don't know. They, they mandate new, for those listening, they do like the, in the city of Portland, they mandate that newer buildings kind of update the sidewalks near them. So you'll see that there's a wider sidewalk near the newest buildings. There's cleaner sidewalks mm -hmm. near the newest buildings. And thanks to a lawsuit called the Creek Settlement, where somebody sued the city over ADA or Americans with Disability Act um, compliance, um, new, new buildings have to have ADA curb or curb cuts or like wheelchair accessible ramps on all four corners. And so you, you see places with newer buildings having more accessible footprints. Dang. What, how do you feel about that, Sachi? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, you're, I mean, your assessment of how this has all gone down in Portland so far and how development ha has happened and, and how infrastructure goes in. Um, well, by infrastructure, I mean like sidewalks and stuff, not necessarily like water and sewer, but um, transportation infrastructure, tree, new trees, that type of thing, oftentimes, or even I would say maybe the majority of times, the city relies on developers to do those things now um, and has a has very limited ability to, to expand those amenities like sidewalks um, and uh, bike lanes and things like that to places beyond just where developers where it's subsidized essentially by developers having to do it um, to comply with the code um, but I will say I mm. think I don't think it's all I mean I, I think there's more to how where things redevelop than just that. I, I mean, I think in oh, Portland, yeah. we're already seeing it. it, it even in St. John's, the example you give of St. John's, like St. John's has been very slow to to develop or to redevelop, but it's yeah. starting to happen. And, um, you know, in part, that's because of the pressures of just the, the real estate market. People can't afford to live in a Absolutely. lot of the more like, quote unquote, desirable, or at least like central <laughs> locations. Um, and then in places like the East side, where I know you've done a lot of work, um, there's the, the issue of 
now like better transit is coming um and that area especially like the the Powell division corridor um farther out like 82nd and beyond um are I think will start redeveloping because there's a lot of sites out there that are going to be the zoning is going to be changing um or if the zoning isn't changing just the the um desirability of the area is going up enough Uh um and but the existing properties out there are mostly like pretty low density you know maybe it's like a mom and pop like you know auto body shop or something that's on like a quarter acre lot with a little building and you know they probably the building's worth less you know the building's hardly worth anything the land is easily redevelopable because you a, a developer could buy that lot, offer them, you know, enough money to go retire and build a new multi-use building on there that's going to make them, um, you know, in theory, a lot of money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, in theory. So, but, you know, the, the problem there is that, well, one of the problems, and this is, this is like, I think the nagging thing that causes people so much fear about zoning changes when in reality it's not the zoning changes that are creating gentrification although i mean i I won't i'm not trying to pretend like zoning happens in a vacuum and it doesn't impact how development happens but like gentrification happens in a large part because of the market Mm. and market forces and because of lack of social services and policy and programming that is put into place to protect people from things like displacement and to invest in existing communities. So, I mean, yes, zoning allows for more development, but allowing for more development doesn't in and of itself create gentrification. And it certainly doesn't in and of itself create displacement, which is really the gentrification isn't really the problem, you know, like gentrification is actually in many cases improving a neighborhood right like it's bringing in amenities um and you know some people may argue about that because it does oftentimes change the character of the neighborhood to an extent i know but really the (laughs) the thing that's like the thing that is the problem is the is the displacement piece and that's really more about investing not investing in communities not having um you know yeah not having the social systems and um services in place to keep to to be like keeping folks in like uh being successful whether it's like small businesses or longtime residents renters whoever it may be that's vulnerable in that place um so i think that's like the bigger issue and zoning often is like becomes the villain um when in reality it's it's not <laughs> i feel like i hear what you're saying i i vibe with you on some things i feel like i feel like gentrification is like a symptom you know what i mean mm-hmm. and it's like a it's really predicated some of how you were saying it's kind of predicated on our like i think development will like newer developments will just give physical form to what's already going on in our society Each new development, I think, as a city, like it'll have like the most newest codes, the newest guidelines. It's a reflection of like our best collective effort as a society to be like, here is 
what we know about the natural environment that we live in. And here, here are our best standards to maintain the ecosystem that we have started by creating this city, this huge monumental experiment, right? Mm-hmm. And like, if we can, I feel like it's a, I feel like it's like, it should be like ecosystem driven, like, like affordable housing, like that's more like, it's hard to manage like site by site. But like, if you can say like, we want a certain percentage in each neighborhood or in each region mm-hmm. accessible to this and that. Right. Like, I think that regulation is definitely more feasible, especially with the capabilities of like the, just like the staffing and like data management capabilities of like our local people, like Home Forward, the Housing Bureau and things like it's, it's both like the ability, there comes a certain point where like regulations are so granular that we can't hope to regulate it before like quantum computing or something. Right? <laughs> and even then it takes somebody who understands that to do it. And then you need the power to enforce. And so like at a certain point, like zoning code, like zoning code goes right hand in hand with permitting and like mm-hmm. our permits. I think, I think, I almost think you have more power with the permits. Like, okay, you can decide like if an industrial is here, how many buildings are where, right? Or like what types of buildings are where, but like, okay, what are you requiring to go into that building? How clean is your water? Are you requiring non-lead pipes? Are you requiring non-lead paint? You know, I would love to see like, I know this is kind of stretching, but I would love to see like when I was in Korea, I saw um, commercial and I think this would go a long way towards securing affordable commercial in like across regions in regions across the US. Like you would see like multiple businesses along multiple floors of a building like here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like it's weird here. We just secure it's like ground level commercial and everything above is housing like that creates this it it constrains the market for commercial you know or it's an all commercial building it's either all commercial building or the first floor is commercial and the rest is the rest is um, yeah housing yeah. yeah that's an interesting point i never i that it, it's that way in a lot of places in japan too and um i wonder what i wonder if that's just like a kind of a american thing like that ground level retail idea like something about like if we're not if we if it doesn't like catch our eye from the ground floor then it's just like not you know like it it doesn't exist or something but i mean well do you so when you say do you mean like retail in on other floors of buildings or do you mean commercial like office space or you know places where things are maybe like all of it made or (laughs) okay so you could have retail too yeah it's like a more mixed mixed use yeah, I think that's true uh, mm-hmm. mixed use. I think we still have segregated uses here. Like, mm-hmm. like they're integrated. I think we have integrated uses now. Like, but what well, they're segregated by floors. I would love, like, that'd be like true integrated mixed use. I'm sorry. I think we have segregated mixed use now. I think if we were to integrate commercial across several floors or office space across several floors, I feel like that might lower the price of either commercial or housing and cause a proliferation of both i i would assume because right now yeah i think oh sorry go finish your thought i'm sorry i i think right now like this all or nothing approach like it it only i feel like it's biased towards big players who can afford to buy the whole building or the whole floor Mm -hmm. 
right? But if you could just rent out like one section of the floor, like half of the floor, like one room in the floor, like you, and you don't have to accrue as much capital. So you don't have to partner with people who are just in it to, to making money off you, you know, making money off your debt towards borrowing the money to start your business. I think it'd be a much more efficient way. I, I think it'd be a much more efficient use of space. That's what I think. Yeah, I think actually, and and I don't know enough about like the commercial rental market in Portland or necessarily other places either to like say this for sure. Mm. Um, but, uh, or to say that this doesn't exist elsewhere. Um, but I, I think at least in small, in, in small case, in a limited amount of cases here in Portland that does exist because mm. um, we, uh, Cascadia has been looking for a new office and uh, the office building that they were looking at, it's actually, it's actually like a um, mostly residential building or, or maybe like 75, 60% residential, but then they have units that are literally just like, it could be an office or it could be someone's home. Like they're, they're kind of, the way they're designed is ambiguous. very ambiguous. Yeah. And um, the, the unit we were looking at is that was actually somebody's home, but is easily like converted into like an office space. And it's cool because it has like a shower bathroom, you know, like um, kind of a lot of the amenities of home. Um, and, and it's the way that the building is set up, it, like it's, it's allowed, those uses are allowed to be like totally mixed within, um, that space. So, uh, I think on the floor where, where that office was, or that, that unit was, um, there was both residential or you have the op option to do either office or, um, residential. So, um, it's kind of, it's a, I think it's kind of a cool model. I could see that's cool. That makes me happy. I could see how how it could be, you know, depending on like, I mean, you'd have to have limitations on like, you know, you maybe wouldn't have any kind of processing or like oh, yeah. commercial in the sense of like making things or anything that you know, you'd have to have those kind of regulations, like, like no fumes and yeah. right, yeah. Um, but. But yeah, in terms of just like being able to live work, like it, it's a it's a nice mix. And I think there are a couple of those buildings now downtown. I, I don't know how um, typical that is, though. Dang. I want to I, I don't know a lot. So <laughs> let me step back. <laughs> that's, just, that's, that's my armchair expert going off. So, yeah, um, you know, we are open to comments. So please feel free to email <laughs> I don't know. We're going to need another <laughs> counterpoints episode with someone yeah. schooling us on this topic. Okay. So I got, I got two last questions for you, Sachi. Okay. Okay. As you now have transitioned to the rural life, right? They're somewhat rural, you know, um, mm -hmm. what, what do you, how do you feel like your connection is to like the people and, and even like the community of like the urban space that you frequent, like you say you work in Portland and you live in like a, a neighboring rur rurality, rurality, I'm just, I don't know if it's a word, but you live in the like local it. rurality. I like it. This is bad. We're making yeah. it. All right, let's do it. Um, what do you think your connection is to the community? How do you, how do you identify with like your larger community? And like, do you think that there's a connection between the two and maybe like a responsibility for like an equitable 
allocation of like infrastructure, you know, like internet or, you know, electricity or roads, like what, what, where do you think like that connection is and what, what do you think the obligation is like from that connection? To like- the obligation of like a public agency to the, like it's rural constituents to yeah. provide them with services. Yeah, like what's, yes, like what's the lowest common denominator for like service to say like, yeah, we we live in this region. Like what does it mean to live in this region? Like we all have access to the road, the highway. Like what is that for you, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. It's been very interesting. Um, So for for anyone listening, um, I lived in Portland for over 20 years of my life and um, then have very recently within the last six months, moved out to unincorporated Washington County, um, kind of at the base of the Coast Range Mountains. Um, I live on a dirt road. I have a well. Um, We get electricity, but that's, we get electricity and garbage garbage service, but um, that's basically the only two, um, uh, what do you call them, Uh, utilities that we have. Um, And it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely very different. It's kind of interesting, the question of community, um, because since it's, yeah, the question of community is interesting um, in part, yeah, like I said, because it's been not very long since I've been here. So still kind of figuring out who the community is and how to make that connection. Um, But also it's been the pandemic the entire time I've been here. So um, there hasn't been as much of an opportunity to, um, you know, meet folks and go to like bigger gatherings or, um, you know, like there's, there's farmer's markets and some of the towns nearby and, um, things like that, uh, stewardship events. There's this really cool, um, Hispanic, uh, market that's in Hillsboro. That's really awesome. It's kind of like a flea market vendor station, like micro vendor kind of station, um, and I love it, but the entire time we've been here, it's been uh, mostly mostly closed because of the pandemic. So, um, yeah. So there's a lot that I haven't been able to get to do yet. Um, but you know, it's it's just it's very it's different and it's similar. You know, like it's similar in the sense that you get to know your neighbors just by walking the road. <laughs> like I really like to walk and. I walk around and run into different neighbors, you know, walking their dog or out working in their yard, um, do, you know, doing whatever they're doing. And, and you just start talking to people. And it, that's the same as in the city. It's just there's a little bit less of that. Can't remember. There's some kind of word for it, but like just the that experience of like randomly meeting someone, you know, like if you if you think if do you know the word? Um, I don't know. the. I think there are. Okay, I think there's a French word for that, but let's see. (laughs) I think you're right. I think you're right. You know, Professor Gephardt at some point, I think, had introduced this concept to us. But um, the idea is um, basically, you know, just in your day-to-day life, you have all these random encounters with people. And a lot of times they produce things that end up building community and relationships and networks for you. Um, in totally unintentional ways, like you, you're riding the bus and you run into someone who, you know, runs a business that happens to be hiring and you're looking for a job and 
you know, like you make that connection just because you ran into them and said hi, or, um, Mm. you know, you run into an old uh, friend who you went to grad school with and they tell you about this really cool project they're working on. And you actually use that idea from their project for like a project you're working on. And, you know, you're like building capacity just from like these kind of casual interactions you have just by randomly seeing people. And I think the the idea, like kind of the urban theory idea anyway, is that that's really accelerated when you live closer to more people um, and are in more kind of communal situations where you're just, you know, like riding the bus where you're just forced to be around a bunch of humans. Um, And you don't have that as much out here in the country. Um, And I do really miss that. In fact, I'd say that's one of the biggest things I miss is just people watching and random encounters and all the funny things that happen to you when a bunch of humans are squished into a relatively small space and living, living alongside of each other. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, that's one thing that that's really cool about the city that I do miss. Um, I can feel and that. yeah. And to answer your other question about the infrastructure, I mean, it's rough living off of a well I don't like it and I would love for the city to run some pipes out here but I know that that's really inefficient and expensive and you know living in a place that's not very location efficient was my choice um well not my it was my partner's choice and I chose to um move with him and I mean we we love it out here like there's it's not like I moved out here for no reason um but I think there is um you know, there's, I made that decision to live somewhere that is not as efficient and where I need to be more self-sufficient in order to survive. Um, and that's, you know, that's my decision, but not everyone makes that decision. Some people just, you know, live where they live, can't afford to move elsewhere. Um, and, you know, maybe don't have a car, but live somewhere where there's like no access to, to frequent service transit um or you know somewhere where there's no broadband internet there's no good like reliable fast internet and so it is definitely very real um out in more rural areas like where we are um especially in poorer parts of this county Mm. um that people don't necessarily have the access that folks in urban places have so um yeah, so that's real. I mean, I'm very fortunate that that's not like a situation I'm in. Um, but it's something I think, you know, we need to think through as planners, especially planners that do more rural pl- planning, like county planners, I think, um, have to think about that a lot. Yeah, I think that makes sense. You know, agency is like so important. So I'm wondering, like, okay, so with you, this would be my last question, but it's it's pretty big because you're an urban planner. <laughs> you do a lot of community-facing work, you know, and you live in a rural space. So I'm wondering, what do you see is as the point of cities? Like, what's the point of humans living together in a shared locale under this, like, increasing, like, under kind of like a shared identity? Like, hey, you live in the city too. We're portlanders we live in the portland region like we're from you know like this is this is like we're not even talking about like nationalism because i think i think like locality 
transcends nationalism like you know that's why like cities play against each other in sports and stuff you know like Mm -hmm. what do you see as the point and i'll preface this i'll give you like my definition so you have something to work off of like i think the point is so that we can like pass off knowledge like the like the aggregate like labor of work and like the knowledge we can just pass it off to the next generation so like the conditions of life will be just a little bit better or that much better for like the next generation i think the point is to make it easier and easier for humans to become self-actualized and that's why i do what i do that's why i try to share information with people as freely as possible to help them reach like the highest state that they feel that they can in their lives not just through work but just as humans like what what do you think what's what's your opinion on that sachi interesting so you think that cities have a way of passing knowledge like almost like like non-verbal like not necessarily through human communication or like intentional overt human communication but like through kind of just shared experiences i believe that they are the conscious effort to do that i don't think they exist if you're not doing that i think that's like when Mm. anarchy happens when people just reject the past and try to start like completely from scratch and just destroy everything without even trying to understand like the why things were the way they were yeah, I like that. That's that's a really interesting take. And I, I think I would agree with that overall. Um, you know, I think maybe to some extent, that's why there exists this fear of changing the quote unquote character of a city, because people have this kind of fixed idea of what a city is and, I, you know, identity and sense of place. And a lot of that is things that we're observing in our surroundings that are teaching us things and giving us signals of like safety or comfort or um, identity or whatever that might be. Um, And I do think cities communicate with us in that way. And, um, you know, cities as a a form of human, human like creation. Mm. Um, And, but, you know, to, to, as a counterpoint to that idea of like, character neighborhood or city character and and the idea that it's like can be tarnished or changed i mean cities are constantly evolving right and like part of a city being what it is is that it's it changes and like it reflects current trends and like human growth and Mm. um new ideas and um all of these things and like I don't know, to kind of push against that too hard, I think is um, both futile and not necessarily, um, not necessarily, it's, it's like, it's a reaction based, I think, more on like fear or insecurity rather than like reality per se. Um, But I mean, I think also, um, so I I like that idea um, of like transfer of knowledge and you know, one thing, one of my favorite things about, or I should say some of my favorite cities are cities that are really like messy and have really informal parts of them and, um, Mm. you know, are, are not super well-ordered or, um, not necessarily even super (laughs) well-planned ironically, Uh. or, or maybe they're just informally planned, you know, the planning 
it's like someone has chosen for things to be the way they are. It just maybe wasn't some like planner in an office somewhere. Maybe it was just like the people that live there deciding, you know, this is where the place where we play base. This is where the place we play soccer every day is. And they just like set up like an informal, like soccer field, like in some empty lot somewhere, you know, like I love that kind of, like informal, like grassroots planning in the cities. Um, and I like cities that allow for that, which a lot of American cities don't like, we're pretty orderly in the, in the way that we organize our, a lot of our cities anyway. Yeah. Um, but like, like top down more so. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I think you see that a little more maybe in it. I haven't traveled much in like, uh, south america latin america or um but i some of what i've seen kind of gives me that impression that there's like a certain like there's certain places that have an informality to them that's that's really cool and i know when i've traveled in asia i've, I've seen that a lot in some cities in like china and um other places so uh th- i think that's like an, an interesting part of, part of cities too that tells a story and and helps us understand like who we are and um, like helps us learn. I don't know that that just came to mind when you were talking about how cities can kind of pass down knowledge. And I was just thinking about like kind of the more informal knowledge systems that aren't as like structured as, you know, some, some cities are. Yeah. Um, But I, yeah. Um, I, I think also just one of the big, and maybe this is too practical, but one of the really important functions of a city is just like efficiency and like yeah. the ability to take care of a lot of people in a very, in a relatively small amount of space mm-hmm. um, and, and give those people access to the things they need and um, you know, for, for their health and safety and security. I kind of hate that word security, but, you know, so, so they have somewhere stable to live. Yeah. Um, clean water to drink toilets that don't, you know, flush into their front yard. (laughs) Yeah. Um, there's not, there's not like, yeah, clean drinking, like all of these things, like it's, I mean, this is like a really maybe like too, practical way of answering your question but really like that's such a huge part like with our pop the amount of people we have in this world like i just don't think we could even come close to supporting all of us without like our dense cities that that are kind of the you know like the the protectors and and providers for so many like millions of people yeah do you know what's funny, Sachin? No. What? <laughs> you really <laughs> thought of that. I like what. I was like, um, do I know what's funny? What is Wally gonna lay on me? Okay. A city becomes more city the more dense it is. And that's why they call it density. Ah. Yeah. I like that. I just thought I, <laughs> I like that. That's good. That just made me think of um. I never knew the the definition of metropolis, like the the actual um, what do you call it, the etymology or you know the root word. It yeah. means mother city, like 
uh. in in Greek, I think it is, or Latin maybe. But that, I think that's interesting, you know, to think of the city as like a mother, like a nurturer, protector, like kind of, I, I don't know, like um, providing for like so much of humanity. Um, it just, yeah, it just came to my, yeah. into my head. I think it's pretty dope. It looks like it is, it is Greek. Then the late Latin. So that, that's. Yeah, Greek, huh? So I guess metro must be mother because polis has to mean city, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't know, actually. I don't know which word means mother and which means polis. Uh, but I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> You're right. It is. It's metro. Okay. That's so funny. So when we when we call, you know, you have like your metro, metro governments, like our, our regional government here in Portland, we call metro. That means mother in Greek. That's, that's funny. That's wow. we're all communists. I didn't know. So. <laughs> <laughs> Mother Portland. <laughs> yes. Mother Portland. Wow. That is that is uh, great to know today. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. All right. All right. Pretty dope. All right. So um wow. All right. So that was that was all we had. Uh Sachi, can can you pronounce your life? I'm always I'm always nervous. Can you pronounce? Your yeah, name? no, thanks for asking. And you, you got it about right. But um, I always appreciate people just saying, why don't you say it for me? So I don't butcher it. Uh, it's Arakawa. Arakawa. Sachi Arakawa. Yes. Okay. Sachi Arakawa, president of the United States. Oh, I'm sorry. President of Mapping <laughs> Action. That was an intentional. Slip. All right. That was uh, president of Mapping Action Collective, associate at um, Cascadia Partners and friend of urbanized podcasts oh thank you what an honor to have to be bestowed that that title yeah no we love the work that you do um what how can if people want to uh plug in to or support the work that you do what can they do um yeah well if people are interested in i didn't really get to talk a lot about the work i do at mapping action collective a, a group of which wally brown is a part um but if people are interested in hearing about mapping action collective and the work that we do um helping to support uh grassroots organizations and individuals working towards social justice with mapping and data um, you can go to our website it's mappingaction.org Hmm. Um, we're also on Twitter. I think it's map action PDX. Uh, boy, I, I should probably know that. I got you in the details. Great. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. We have a Twitter. Um, and, uh, yeah, if, uh, if you need any planning, uh, planning consultant work, uh, Cascadia partners is, uh, is my day job and they're a great firm. So cascadiapartners.com shout out to them. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Urbanized Podcast. My name is Wally Brown. Today, I have the pleasure, the honor, and the grace of <laughs> uh, speaking <laughs> together with uh, Zachi Arakawa, uh, Senior Associate at Cascadia Partners, President of the Mapping Action Collective, and Researcher at the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project. Sachi, how you doing? Hello, Wally Brown. I'm really good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm excited for this interview. 
Me too. It's not very often you get to chat with one of your friends on on a recorded podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's about that time. <laughs>